0: Turn, please, to the epistle to the Romans, to Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and to the first chapter. I would like to read the same verses that I read last Lord's Day morning from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 1, and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle. Separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised afore through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who has declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake among whom are ye also called to be Jesus Christ to all that are in Rome beloved of God called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ we said last time that this is a personal letter written by the man Paul to the church in the city of Rome. It was a church that Paul had never been to. It was a church where he was no doubt known by name, but not by face. He had never been to that place. And perhaps it is because he had never been there that he gives a longer introduction to the letter than he does to other of his writings. We said last time that, it, that the first 17 verses are something of an introduction to these readers, And we said that in all of these verses, of the many things that are said there, they all fall pretty much under these three categories. He speaks about himself. He summarizes the gospel. And in the third place, he speaks of his heart in reference to the Romans. He speaks about the Romans. Last time, we began to consider this first category of things which comes in this passage, Paul's statements about himself. And he actually makes very many of them but we said that we wouldn't cover all of them and that I wanted to use verse 5 as, something of, of, as a summary verse of what Paul says about himself. So he says in verse 5, Through whom, that is through the Lord Jesus, we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Now he, he says two things in this passage about himself. One is that he is the recipient of grace. And the other is that he is the recipient of the office of apostle, that he has received apostleship as well as grace from Christ. We said we spoke last time about his being a recipient of grace, and we said it's important that we understand Paul's views of grace because everything that he writes is molded and governed by both his experience as well as his understanding of what grace is. You remember last time, just very quickly by way of review, when he spoke of grace, he spoke of three things. He said in the first place that grace is free and unearned and undeserved. And that perhaps is one of the most fundamental ideas that is associated with grace in Paul's writings. It is thoroughly undeserved, unearned, and free. You remember the illustration we used about the two boys, the two boys that were engaged in the spelling contest, Johnny the good boy, who's very diligent in his studies, very faithful to his teacher, The day of the test comes and he answers all the questions correctly and he receives the prize. He receives this 10-speed bicycle. That's justice. He deserved that. He received that bicycle because he worked so hard and did so well. Then there was the other boy, you remember Billy, who was a surly, nasty, unruly boy who didn't like his teacher and didn't like school and wouldn't study. And he goes to the spelling contest, can't answer a single question, absolutely fails with a sneer in his voice as he fails And what happens? The teacher just loves him so much that the teacher goes out and buys another bicycle and gives it to him. Well, how did he get that bicycle? Not on the basis of justice, but on the basis of grace. It was free. It was unearned. It was undeserved. He should never have had it on any basis of merit. But it was given to him simply because the teacher loved him, not on the basis of anything that he deserved. Well, grace, Paul says, is like that. And he demonstrates that from many perspectives, but just to shorten the review, The one thing that to me is the most powerful proof that grace is free is that grace abounds in the context of sin. It is not in the context of righteousness that grace abounds, but in the context of sin. And the Apostle Paul's life was a a vivid illustration of that. God did not look down and see that Paul was becoming a better and better man, a more and more righteous man, and say, well, good, that man's a candidate for mercy. I'll show him salvation. He looked down upon Paul and saw him as absolutely undeserving, thoroughly opposed to righteousness and to God, and gave him the gospel. Why? On the basis of grace. Grace abounds in the midst of sin. It's free, it's undeserved, and it's unearned. We also said that grace brings every aspect of salvation, and we also said that grace always produces humility and gratitude. Well, so much for review. Let us come to the second thing that Paul says about himself in this passage. He not only is the recipient of grace, but he is indeed the recipient of apostleship. He said in verse 1 that he is a servant of Christ, called an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. In verse 5, he repeats that he has from Christ received apostleship. Now, in many of the Apostle Paul's letters, he puts stress upon the fact that the Apostleship is from Christ it is not from men it is not through men it is directly from Christ and in so doing he stresses his authority that what he says what he writes is to be taken as the very words of Christ he is the representative of Christ in the earth he speaks the words of God he wrote the words of God the Apostles were in a very unique position there was no one like there has been no one like them since. The apostles were specifically chosen by Christ. They were given unique gifts to demonstrate that they were Christ's representatives and they were themselves the organs of revelation. And none of these people who call themselves apostles today, the pope, no one stands in the same place that the apostles stood. They spoke the words of Christ. And thus their words came with absolute authority. What they said was not merely good advice. It came with the authority of the commandment of God. But that isn't what he's stressing in this place. That is what he stressed in Galatians 1 and in other places. But here the stress is not so much upon his authority, that is assumed, but it is upon the purpose of his apostleship. Why did Christ make him an apostle? Why did Christ give him this authority? Why did Christ put him in this unique position? What is the purpose or the goal of his apostleship? And we find it in these words, Through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Now look at the praise that I've just read this phrase unto obedience of faith. It may be that some of your translations say unto the obedience of the faith, and that's not a very good translation. It's not referring to obedience primarily to a set of doctrines. It is referring to the obedience which springs from and is based on faith. Your subjective faith is something that produces obedience. It is not unto the obedience of the faith. It is that he is called unto obedience of faith among all the nations. Paul was not parochial. Paul didn't have a small view. Paul was delivered from that small mindset that characterized the Pharisees. He realized that Christ had sent him to go into all the peoples of the earth, that no one was excluded because of their geographical limitations or because of their race or because of their creeds or heritages, that all the peoples of the earth were to come under the obedience of faith and that he was to go to them all. Now just notice, before we get into some of the details, notice this, that the stated purpose, the stated purpose that the Lord gave for Paul's apostleship is not simply to bring people to faith, but it is to bring people to the obedience of faith. Now, it's certainly true and ought to be assumed that Paul's task was to bring people to faith. He went everywhere preaching what God was like, and he preached about men's need of being reconciled to God, that they didn't love God, that they weren't pleasing to God, that God was against them and that they were against God and that that needed to be changed, that there needed to be reconciliation. He preached that. And he preached that in Christ, every provision had been made for people to be forgiven. And as we saw last time, he preached that that was available on the basis of grace, not on the basis of something you would do to obtain God's favor. But that's not all he preached. He was not merely commissioned by Christ to bring people to faith. He was commissioned by them to bring people to the obedience of that faith. And that's what I would like us now to consider this morning. Let us consider two points that come from this phrase and then the implica- some of the implications from them. Two points that come out of this phrase, the obedience of faith. The first is that Christ and the apostles everywhere demanded obedience to the commandments of God. That Christ and the apostles everywhere demanded obedience to the commandments of God. The fact that everything is by grace and not earned does not mean that the commandments of God are of no use to you. Everywhere they taught that there must be obedience to those commandments. And the second thing is that the obedience which the gospel demands is always the product of faith. It is never that you view obedience as something that you must do in order to receive salvation. It is always to be seen as that which is the product of, stimulated by, and motivated by faith. Now, I realize that those are rather lengthy headings for those two points. Let us look at them in more detail. I trust that God will make them more clear and more relevant than those words may have suggested. In the first place, Christ and the apostles demand obedience to the commandments of God if one is to be saved. There is a popular teaching in our day that says that in order to be saved, that is, in order to be reconciled to God, in order to be forgiven, in order to go to heaven, we need not be obedient to God. All that is necessary is that we believe. They say that faith alone, believing by itself, is sufficient to bring someone to heaven. Obedience, they say, is optional. It's a good thing, but it's optional. Obedience to the commandments of God are not required to get you to heaven. Now they're required, of course, if you want heaven to be made nicer. They say that obedience is required to have crowns and to have rewards. But as far as getting to heaven is concerned, obedience is not necessary. Intellectual confidence that the facts of the Bible are true, that the events of the gospel are indeed so, that believing that is sufficient to get someone to heaven. Well, this is completely contrary to the New Testament. It is completely contrary to the commission of the great apostle. And it is important that we understand that if we're to appreciate much of what he says in the book, in the book of Romans. So I would like us just to consider a few of the places where the Apostle Paul makes it clear that if one is to be saved, have his sins forgiven, he must be obedient to the commandments of God. Let us first look in the book of Romans in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is speaking about judgment in the passage that we're going to read. And notice what he says in Romans chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 6 in reference to the day of judgment, the judgment of God. He says, God will render to every man according to his works. To them that by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and incorruption, to them he will give eternal life. But unto them that are factious and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness, shall be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that worketh evil. Now the Apostle Paul, you remember, is the one who says throughout that we are not saved on the basis of our merit. And this passage is not to be construed to argue against that. But he is saying, in the context of grace, that when the judgment takes place, it will be necessary that you obeyed the truth, that you obeyed righteousness. Those who don't, will suffer tribulation and anguish of soul, eternal punishment in hell. But those who do, those who by well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, such persons will indeed receive everlasting life. You must be obedient, or you'll never see everlasting life. If you will not be obedient, you will certainly see everlasting punishment. Look in chapter 6 of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, speaking writing in verse 16 and 17, he says these words. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Now remember, he's speaking to Roman Christians. And he says to them, "'Know you not that to whom you present yourselves as servants unto obedience, his servants ye are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness?' But thanks be to God that whereas ye were servants of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching whereunto you were delivered. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. In verse 16, he divides people up into two categories. Those that are obedient to unrighteousness, which leads to death, And those that are obedient to righteousness, which leads to life. Just two categories. There are a hundred ways, of course, that you could divide people. You could divide them by age or by sex or any number of things. But in this case, Paul divides them on the basis of one thing. That is what they obey. There are people that obey unrighteousness. And there are people that obey righteousness. In the next verse, referring to those who had become Christians, he said, you changed. You were obedient to unrighteousness, but you became obedient from the heart unto what? Unto truth, unto a form of doctrine whereunto you were delivered. Now, what was the change? It wasn't simply that they had new ideas about Jesus. It wasn't simply that once they didn't know about him because they were Roman pagans, and now they know about him, believe that he's the son of God, believe that he died on the cross, believe that he was raised from the dead, believe that he's coming again, believe that he would be the judge of the earth, and therefore they're, they're sa- that wasn't it at all. The difference was not that they believed new things. Of course they believed new things. The difference was that they obeyed new things. They obeyed righteousness. They became became obedient to the dictates of the law of God. And there are only two kinds of people, those that obey unrighteousness and are lost, and those that obey righteousness and indeed go to heaven. Just look at a little passage in Romans chapter 16, at the ending of the book in Romans chapter 16 and verse 19. Maybe I should ask you to put your finger there and turn back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, speaking of the Romans, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's a wonderful thing. They were in the center center of commerce, the center of communications in the city of Rome And their faith was known all throughout the world. But now notice how he says the same thing in Romans chapter 16 and verse 19. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. How in the world do you know that somebody has faith? I mean, can you see the relationship that they have with God? Yes, you can. You can see it by what they obey. That's how their faith was known everywhere. Their faith was tangible. It was observable. They didn't maintain some thoughts in their mind that were only appropriate for the closet. They believed the gospel and all of its implications, and they believed that they should honor God, and they obeyed him. And that obedience, which indeed was the fruit of faith, could be seen everywhere that that their testimony was known. We'll turn, please, to Titus chapter 2 simply trying to make the point that in Paul's mind it was necessary to be obedient in order to enter into heaven. In Titus chapter 2, you have this wonderful statement about the grace of God. In Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is giving very specific directions as to how certain people are supposed to live. He tells the older men how they're supposed to live, and then he tells the older women what they're supposed to be like, and then he tells the younger women and the younger men and he covers everybody and gives them very specific directions. And then he speaks about how servants are to live and masters. And then he says this in verse 11 in order to give support to all these directives as to how you're supposed to live. He says in verse 11, Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to the intent that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world." Now, what does grace come and say? The grace that brings salvation, the grace that is unmerited, unearned, free, undeserved. It doesn't just come and say, okay, here's the gospel, here's salvation, it's a wonderful thing, you never could have earned it, just forget about even trying. This grace that no one can earn, this forgiveness of which no one is worthy, comes bringing full pardon and instructions. Instructions that you must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly and righteously. Wherever the grace of God comes, it not only brings this wonderful announcement that there is pardon to those who don't deserve pardon, (coughs) integral to that announcement is instruction. That you must live righteously. You must live righteously. Thanks to Christ, who gave in reference to Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. What's the point of that? Wherever Christ has died for someone, it always affects two things. It brings them forgiveness. That is, it redeems such persons from all their iniquity and it also purifies such persons so that they become zealous for good works. It always happens. That's just a fact in the last statement. But in the verse 11, it's, it's not so much a fact as it is a declaration. And that declaration is that wherever grace comes, there will always be these words too. You're instructed to live righteously. Obedience is integral to grace. I would like you just to look at one passage in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus makes the same statement. Obviously, we could be here hours looking at many of these passages. I do this this morning only because in our time there is so much de emphasis and denial of this truth. And so, the other passage I'd like you to look at is in the Gospel of Luke and Luke, two passages in Luke, Luke chapter 14, and then in a moment, a second. Passage in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 25, you have these words of the Apostle Luke, I'm sorry, of Dr. Luke. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Now there went with him, that is with Jesus, great multitudes, and he turned and said unto them, If any man comes unto me and hates not his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his own cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Now here are these multitudes of people interested in the religious events that were going on, enough interested to follow him out from their homes, and throng around him, and crowd about him, Jesus explains to them something that's absolutely essential to understand if someone's going to become a Christian. And that is that if you're going to be a Christian, it does demand self-denial and obedience. And he says if anyone will not do these things, if anyone will not count his dearest family, his relatives, if anyone will not count his own life, his own interests, his own predilections, if anyone won't count those things as if he hated them, In contrast to his love for Christ, that man cannot be Jesus' disciple. He doesn't say you can be a second-class disciple, that you can be a disciple but not have the blessings of... No, he just says you cannot be my disciple. He says if you won't deny yourself and become obedient to me, it's just impossible. No matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, if you won't self-consciously commit yourself to obedience... You cannot be my disciple. And this is, of course, the passage where he uses two illustrations to teach them that they should count the cost. Many of you would remember the passage, I trust. It's in this place where he talks about what a foolish thing it would be for a man to consider erecting a building. If he just got the idea in his mind and didn't first consider, do I have enough money, do I have enough concrete, do I have enough land? He said it would be a foolish thing to go out and just try to build this building without first thinking about whether you can really do it. And the same is true about a man who would go to war. It would be a ridiculous thing to just get some emotional idea that I'm going to go defeat this enemy and then run out to battle without first considering, do I have enough soldiers? Do I have strategic advantage? Can I really win this war? It's foolish to do that. It's foolish for somebody to consider my gospel. It's foolish for somebody to consider they want their sins forgiven if they're not willing to, count, if they're not willing to do what it's going to take if you're not willing, he says, to deny yourself and be obedient to me, forget it. It'll be you all right? He doesn't just say everything will be all right. He doesn't just say rearrange the furniture of your thoughts and you'll go to heaven. He says, forget it. You cannot be my disciple unless you're determined to deny yourself and be obedient to me. You wonder if Jesus meant that literally. You wonder if he meant that seriously or whether it was just a statement of hyperbole for effect for the moment and you go through the Gospels and you see how terribly literally he did mean that and one of those places is in Luke chapter 16 18 and I'd like you to turn there in Luke chapter 18 you have this reference to the ruler that came to Jesus in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18 here's a certain ruler asking him saying good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life this is a serious question This man is seriously interested in the subject. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'd like you to remember something about this man. This man is coming out of a Jewish context. You remember what we considered last time? That they had the idea that because they were the special covenant people of God, and because God had given his law, that if they would obey the law sufficiently, they would thus have salvation. They would just thus have God's favor. Now, you might think that to somebody who already had the mindset that if I just work hard enough, I can get to heaven, you might have thought that to that man, Jesus would have been very careful to make sure that he understood salvation by grace through faith. But notice what he does say to him. talks to him about obedience and explains to him that his kind of obedience was not adequate. It wasn't the right kind. Notice what he says. In verse 19, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, even God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, all these things have I observed from my youth up. And verse 22, and when Jesus heard it, he said unto him, one thing thou lackest yet, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became exceeding sorrowful, for he was very rich. And the account is that the man went, it was, he left. Now, how seriously did Jesus mean what he said in Luke chapter 14? He said, If you're not willing to give up everything and be absolutely and radically obedient to me, you cannot be my disciple. Here was somebody who wanted to be his disciple, who wanted to know what to do to obtain eternal life. Jesus made it very clear he was not speaking hyperbole in Luke chapter 14 that man was not willing to give up what was dear to him. And Jesus said, unless you'll do that and then come follow me, you can't be my disciple. Now the point that I'm trying to make is a simple point and that is that Christ and his apostles taught that in order to have true salvation, in order to enter into heaven, you had to be obedient to the law of God. You had to be obedient to whatever it is that the scriptures call upon us to do. When the Apostle Paul recites his commission in Acts chapter 26, remember Paul was imprisoned, he was called before, the, before Agrippa, and he gives Agrippa his testimony. He talks about how he became a Christian, and also about how he became an apostle. And in that place he says what Christ wanted him to do. Christ wanted him to go to the Gentiles, and he wanted to turn the to Gentiles from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, for the remission of sins through faith. And he says to Agrippa that I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling. And then he says what he did. He said he went everywhere preaching repentance and calling upon men to do works worthy of repentance. He took his commission seriously. He was to bring people to obedience, not to some kind of empty faith. It wasn't his duty to go out and to intellectually stimulate people's minds with the gospel and to change their minds from paganism to views of, to true views of what Jesus was and did, that was never sufficient. It was to bring them to ethical change. It was to bring them to such a faith that would result in obedience. So he wasn't satisfied to merely inform them about the events of Christ's work on the cross. He was only satisfied when he brought them to obedience of faith where they actually brought forth works that were worthy works that were worthy of repentance. The second point that we want to appreciate from this phrase before we consider applications is that the obedience which the gospel requires always flows from faith. The first point is that in order to be in the kingdom of heaven, in order to enter into salvation, one must be obedient to the commandments of God. But the second point is that this obedience always flows from faith. There are people who take seriously the biblical commandments to obey the God to, to obey the law of God. And taking it seriously, they overemphasize it and they come up with the idea that in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, you must earn it by your obedience, which of course is absolutely contrary to what the apostle Paul taught. But that is what some people wind up with. They go to some of these passages that I've read and they say, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to earn it. If you're going to have pardon, you've got to earn it. And you've got to earn it on the basis of works, on the basis of obedience to these commandments of God. Well, I'm not going to go over today what we did last Lord's Day morning, but I trust for those of you who are here, it's obvious Paul denies that. He never calls upon people to try to do anything to earn their salvation. Obedience is never a substitute for faith. And neither is obedience something that you mix with your faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. And this faith always produces obedience. Always. It's because that's true that the Lord Jesus and the apostles can demand obedience. It's not that they're demanding obedience in order to become a Christian, but because of the nature of true faith, there always will be obedience, and thus they make it obvious. You cannot... Be a Christian unless you have that faith which does produce obedience I would just like to refer you to two passages one is in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 and in that passage the Apostle Paul says that Christ for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision but faith working in love now what's he saying He's saying obedience to the law is a matter of indifference. I'm sorry, obedience to the Mosaic rituals is a matter of indifference in terms of deciding whether or not you're saved. I should say this more carefully. It is a matter of indifference in terms of your becoming saved. All that matters is faith, but it is faith which works by love. It is never faith without works, The apostle James says such faith is dead. He says you have faith that doesn't exhibit itself in obedience. It's dead. He says that faith can never save. That's the faith that the demons have. The demons believe everything. That faith will never save. The faith that saves is the faith that works through love. Now what does that mean? It means that you have been exposed to your need of the gospel and you have begun to understand that you are wholly unworthy, that God could justly punish you, but that he's provided a means of salvation in Christ. And you've come to cast your whole soul on that. You trust no longer in what you have done, no longer in your moral reformations. You're trusting completely in what Jesus has done on the cross for you. That's faith. And that is always coupled with the deepest affections for Christ and the deepest love for Christ. And faith works through that love. Somebody who has really, really has faith, really has cast his soul upon Christ that person loves Christ and that real faith is so stimulated by real love that out of gratitude and obedience the person is I'm sorry, out of gratitude the person is thoroughly obedient to whatever it is that Christ asks him we see that all the time on a very low level you take a little child and you show that child kindness and that child will do everything you say because he loves you Not because you're bigger than he is, not because you have threatened him, but because he loves you. That love will work itself out in that child in obedience to whatever you ask. Well, on an infinitely greater level, that's the point here. Where you have real faith, you have such a sense of appreciation and love that it always works in obedience. The other passage, of course, is in John chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus repeats that statement that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not if you're bullied by me. It's not if you just have some intellectual ideas about me. It's not if you fear the judgment. It is if you love me. You'll keep my commandments, always. Wherever there is faith, there is love, and love always expresses itself in obedience. And while it is true that the scriptures do use as an incentive the fear of God to obedience, indeed it does, As we've often said, the most powerful motive in the Scripture to obedience is love. It is affection, but it's always a part of faith. Now, it may burn at low levels. There may be dry periods in a person's life. But where there is faith, there is love, and it always produces obedience. But again, the point that I want to make is that this obedience, which Paul is commissioned to impose upon all of the Gentiles, all of the nations is not an obedience of works righteousness it is an obedience of faith he's not coming to them and laying before them if you just obey 15 pounds worth of obedience you get 15 pounds worth of grace it is not the obedience of a works righteousness it is the obedience of faith that he's laying upon all of the peoples all right now let us take just a few moments before our time is gone to consider three of the implications of this phrase and of this passage The first is that the goal of Paul's apostleship teaches us a great deal about true Christianity. Paul's purpose, the apostle to the Gentiles, the representative of Christ, in a very real sense the molder and shaper of Christianity, Paul's great commission was to bring the nations to the obedience of faith, and that teaches us a great deal about Christianity. Christianity has been reduced to an impotent, An anemic set of ideas that are only appropriate for the prayer closet or for the church sanctuary. It has been reduced to an inner feeling. Christianity has been reduced to an inner sense of peace and security, which has little or no effect upon your outward conduct or upon the engagements that you have in the world. It has been reduced to a private matter between you and God, which has little relevance to other relationships. And that is an absolutely false view of real Christianity. It is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of true Christianity. The nature of true Christianity is to be seen in the commission of Paul. It is that every aspect of an individual's life is brought into the obedience of faith. Every aspect, not just what you think when you're praying, Not just what you say when you might stand in a religious gathering to to speak or to pray. It's not that. It is that indeed. But it is to be where we have come to obedience to Christ in every conceivable area of our life. Too often this caricature of Christianity is set forth. To be a Christian is to have wonderful feelings. To be a Christian is to have a sense of peace. To be a Christian is to be reconciled to God, but it only has any relevance in the small circles of your prayer closet or of in religious gatherings. The fact is that Christ came, uh, Paul came, as the representative of Christ, to bring those who believed the gospel into obedience of faith in every conceivable area of their lives. And so, when you read the Book of Romans as well as the other books of the New Testament you find there very specific directives that do touch every area of life. You find directives there concerning the home. There is a God-ordained pattern for the home. It is not something that just was the product of social evolution. There's a God-ordained pattern for the home, and he expects anyone who's converted from paganism to be obedient to that pattern. You have to have a husband, you have to have a wife, The husband has a certain role, the wife has a certain role, the children have certain roles, the parents' two children have certain responsibilities. You become a Christian, it's not just that you feel good about God, you have certain responsibilities then to your wife, and to your husband, and to your children. The Apostle Paul is very clear about making specific requirements in reference to an individual's vocation. You don't just have these nice feelings about God on Sundays. In your vocation, the, the place where you work, the thing that you do, Paul gives very specific and indeed exacting commandments that are to be obeyed. Every Christian is known in his workplace if he takes seriously those commandments. No one who is a pagan and works beside a true Christian would say that this man's Christianity is only in the closet or in the church services because a true Christian has come to obedience of faith in his workplace. His speech is different. His integrity is impeccable he's concerned about righteousness and justice and fairness. If he's in a place where he has an opportunity to have authority over men, he's concerned to impose justice, fairness, integrity. He's a different person. Not because he has these thoughts about God that are contained in his soul, but because he has been brought to the obedience of faith in terms of his vocation. It It is true in reference to our leisure, now, somebody who's a true Christian doesn't engage in the leisure of the world because he's been brought to the obedience of faith. It's true in reference to our church life. We don't engage in church life like pagan religions do because Paul has spoken very specifically about what's to be done in and by the church, and we've become obedient. We've become obedient to those commandments because of faith. It is true in reference to our view of, in terms of social issues and state Christian relationships, which is such a hot an open topic in our, in, our, in our present day. You know, you have these men who will say they're politicians and then they'll say that I can be a politician and a Christian and my views of Christianity won't have any effect upon my views of politics because I keep them separate. It's an absolute misunderstanding what real Christianity is. If a Christian is a lawyer, then in that vocation, his views of that profession have been brought into obedience of faith. If a person is a nurse, if a person is a plumber, if a person is a ditch digger, if a person is a politician... He is obedient to the dictates of the word of God and he's motivated by faith to be obedient to those things. And thus the idea, of the, the idea of the Apostle Paul and the picture of real Christianity that comes out in the Bible is not that you come to Christ and you have these lovely warm feelings or these personal thoughts about God. It is that you have true thoughts about God and you have holy feelings about God but you're also, you have been brought to the obedience of faith. True obedience which is based upon and flows from and is excited by faith. Well, there's a second thing then that I would like to observe in reference to this phrase, the obedience of faith. And that is that, that Paul's apostleship, the goal of Paul's apostleship teaches us that it is our duty as Christians to stir one another to obedience to God's law. It is our duty as Christians to stir one another to obedience to God's law. It is the work of the minister and it is the work of the saint. And I say that because of a popular error in our day. Is it not true that all the truths of God have been ruined by errors? There is a popular error in our day. Some of you have been exposed to it. And that error is that the work of the minister, the work of the evangelist, the work of you as the people of God when you're concerned to be an influence upon people, the work is to present Christ and to present the gospel of forgiveness and grace in all of its glory. And that alone... And when that has been done, people will so wonderfully respond that they will just be different in every aspect, and without instruction, they will just know what to do to please God in every area. That wasn't Paul's view. There was nobody who excelled Paul in extolling the glories of Christ and of grace and of free forgiveness. But he was very careful to impose and to lay upon the people of God all the aspects of duty. You have these people who are always crying about legalism and being law preachers as if to ever as if to ever imply that the people of God ought to be meticulous in their obedience was to bring them under some bondage that's Paul's point he was commissioned by Christ to make people meticulous in their obedience he was commissioned by Christ not only to bring them the bare gospel but the implications of that gospel in all the areas of obedience and so it is that he had no shame in being very demanding and specific of what he expected people to do. He didn't see that as legalism. He didn't see that as imposing his views because he was the representative of Christ. He was simply speaking what Christ would have him speak. The commission that was given to the apostles in Matthew chapter 28 is very much the point. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things Christ had commanded. That's the work of the ministry. It is to teach the people of God to observe everything that Christ has commanded. And wherever that is neglected, then the ministry is being seriously ruined and flawed and the results will be seen in the people. It is also the ministry of the people of God. What are we supposed to do, according to Hebrews chapter 10? We're supposed to consider one another for what purpose? Not merely to comfort, not only to put our arm around our brothers, certainly for that. We're supposed to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. It's supposed to be our concern to minister to each other in such a way that if we see somebody who professes Christ, but in any of the areas where God has spoken does not live like a Christian, it's our responsibility to, put, to go, to consider that brother or sister, to analyze what their needs are, what the problems are, and then to do what needs to be done to get them obedient. We're supposed to stir them up to love and obedience, good works. Good works. And so let us not fall before these people who would have us to believe that if you're just presenting the glories of Christ, you're doing all that needs to be done. And if you ever demand obedience, that you've become a legalist. That's foolish. That's foolish. That's the Apostle Paul's commission. And we should not back away from that commission. But then there's a third observation that I would like to make on the basis of this phrase. And that is that an understanding of Paul's apostolic commission helps us see why many who profess Christ have never felt the power of true Christianity. I'd like you to really think with me through this last point. An understanding of Paul's commission helps us to appreciate why some persons who profess Christ have never known the power of real Christianity. You see, many modern preachers are not as honest as the Apostle Paul and they're not as honest as the Lord Jesus and whether they're governed by ignorance or whether they're governed by a lust for numbers and for seeming success they are not they are not honest as the Apostle Paul you do have these men that will stand up and who will appeal to people who are desperately in need And they will say to people who are in emotional crises or in personal dilemmas that Jesus is the great Savior, the great Deliverer, who can heal all the problems of your life. He will take you off of all your bad habits. He will improve your financial standing. He will give you a social life. He will do whatever is necessary to meet whatever kind of dilemma you have. And all you need to do is believe. All you need to do is to walk forward or to raise your hand or to sign a card, to have sincere, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. And to sincerely call out to Him and ask Him to forgive you. And if you'll just do that, He'll meet every issue of your life. That's a lie. It's a lie because it's only partially true. Obviously, there's a great deal of truth to that. But the bottom line is it's a lie because it leaves out some es- essential matters. Clearly, according to the Scriptures, Jesus is a great Savior, an impeccably great Savior. Nothing that the world offers can match what Christ can do for people. Christ forgives sins. Christ reconciles to God. Christ has all authority with his his own hand to change your dispositions and your habits. There is no way that you can diminish in speech the worth of Christ as Savior. There is nothing that he cannot do for those who come to him. But to say that all he requires is just to believe, just to put some thoughts in your mind, just to say, I want it, to imply that that's all that he requires is a lie. He requires obedience. He requires repentance. And indeed, we come to him in faith with nothing to persuade him, no works, no righteousness, nothing do we say, Lord, look at this, don't I earn something? No, we don't do that at all. But when we come with a faith that truly apprehends Christ in the same breath that we cry out to him and ask him for mercy, we say to him, oh Lord Jesus, whatever your will is, I will do it. I am so grateful to you for being willing to forgive my sins. I will give my life up wholly to whatever your law asks. No silly ideas of saying, well, I'll be a missionary or I'll do that. But if you're a plumber, you say, Lord Jesus, if you would forgive my sins in gratitude to you, I would be a holy man in the job. I will be the most conscientious plumber that can exist. That's all he asks. But he asks everything. But what happens? Some people take those evangelists seriously. And they really mean this. They really think this is a wonderful situation. All I have to do, I don't have to change my life. I don't have to be engaged in self-denial. I don't have to do anything but walk forward. I don't have to do anything but say this prayer. And they say the prayer sincerely and nothing happens. And they go away and they say they say years later in bitterness they say the gospel is for fools or the gospel is for religious people or the gospel is for those people who have some predisposition that I don't have it's not for me because I tried it I did what they said and nothing happened to me they lied to you they lied to you And they will give a horrible accounting in the day of judgment. But it's for you today to understand what the requirements of the gospel response really are. It is to believe. It is to repent. It is to listen to Jesus when he says, count the cost. Don't even bother if you're not willing to give up everything and become obedient to me. But anyone no matter how great and grievous and multiple their sins are no matter how hard their hearts have been or how many years they have continued in wickedness anyone who is brought to a point of need and who gives themselves up fully to Christ anyone that would so come will be received and will be pardoned but if you're in that place of considering Christ then mark well what he says The apostle Paul was sent by Jesus to bring the nations to faith and to the obedience of faith. And if you will not come to the obedience of faith you will never have faith nor salvation and you will be lost. It is a wonderful thing that God has given us the apostles and it is a wonderful thing that in his providence he caused them to write. And it is a wonderful thing that in his goodness he has maintained those writings that we might know what he wants and that we might know him. None of you are left to grope around and to wonder. None of you are left to seeking out the most religious person you know and asking him what he thinks about God and the gospel. We have the book. We have the apostolic writings. We need not wonder. Submit to the obedience of faith and you will be saved. Rebel and you will be lost let us pray together Heavenly Father we thank you that in the midst of such a confused religious world that we do have the Bible we thank you that you have not left your people to be aimless and rudderless but that we have the scriptures it does cause us great shame to consider how how badly the gospel has been misrepresented in our time and how those who profess your son, have never been brought to the obedience of faith in so many cases. and It brings sorrow to us. We pray that you would so revive the true preaching of the Bible, that true Christianity and the true gospel, the proper responses to the gospel, would be broadly and powerfully made known in our land. We ask that it would please you that your face would so shine upon your people that we would be so wonderfully transformed by the working of Thy Spirit and that the gospel would be so powerfully preached and that our lives would authenticate that preaching that there would, by Thy kindness and power be large, massive turnings of people to Christ. We thank You that the gospel's scope is large and that all of the peoples are to be brought to this place of obedience and we pray that it would be hastened by the working of Thy Spirit. We think of how paul said that this was all to be done for the sake and for the glory of christ and it is truly for his glory that we desire this but we do not only pray in the large but we pray for but we pray for persons in this very room we ask that you would please and not allow any of them to be deceived we pray rather that the glories of the gospel would be wonderful to them and that you would cause them to want christ and to want pardon and to gladly give up all things for Him. We pray together, in Christ's name, Amen.